Welcome to Space Strategy, a podcast from the American Foreign Policy Council's Space Policy Initiative, where we are shaping a vision for the next strategic frontier. Now here's your host, AFPC Senior Fellow in Defense Studies, Peter Gerritsen. Welcome to the Space Strategy Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Gerritsen. Today, my guest is Dean Chen. Dean brings knowledge of China's military and space capabilities as the Heritage Foundation's Research Fellow on Chinese Political and Security Affairs. He specializes in China's military and foreign policy, and in particular, the relationship to the rest of Asia and with the United States. Chen has written extensively on China's military doctrine, technological implications of its space program, dual-use issues associated with the communist nation's industrial and scientific infrastructure. He previously worked 13 years as a senior analyst, first with the Science Applications International Corp, or SAIC, and then with the China Studies Division of the Center of Naval Analysis, a federally funded research institute. Before entering the private sectors, Chung studied at China's defense industrial complex for the Congressional Agency, the Office of Technology Assessment. Dean earned a bachelor degree from Princeton University in 1986, and he studied for his doctorate at MIT, and he resides in Vienna, Virginia. So thank you for being on the podcast, Gene. Thank you for having me. I wanted to sort of start with the basics. I think many people I, uh, I run into who have questions about China seem to sort of still think about China sort of from the old uh, coffee table book, A Day in the Life of China, or the country that might have been somewhere where we encountered it in, in the Korean War. So tell us a little bit about modern China. Today's China is a very different creature than the coffee table books war, the recollections from the Korean War, even Vietnam War. Let's begin with the realities. China is the second largest GDP in the world. If you go to China's coast, uh, the cities along there, Tianjin, Shanghai, Shenzhen, you would have trouble distinguishing it from being in downtown Tokyo or downtown Seoul. Neon everywhere, uh, consumer goods everywhere. Uh, You can get Salvatore Ferragamo, you can find Gucci, you can find Michael Kors in shopping centers and stores everywhere. This is a country that all you have to do is actually go to your local tourist venue, the Smithsonian and the mall in DC, uh, the Louvre, the British Museum, and you will see thousands of Chinese tourists uh, trooping through looking at the Mona Lisa and looking at the Eiffel Tower. This is also a country that science and technology technology-wise, has rapidly caught up in at least certain key areas with the rest of the world. China is the country after the United States that has now landed on Mars successfully. Uh, It has done something that Europe has not done, that Russia gets an asterisk on because a Russian lander got about 70 lines worth of image. China is the only country that has landed on the far side of the moon. Um, In the same way, the Chinese military This is not your grandfather's People's Liberation Army. This is not a military that believes that you will run out of bullets or AMRAMs or harpoon missiles before they run out of bodies. This is a military that fields world-class military equipment whose PLA day flybys are led by AWACS, Airborne uh, Warning and Communication System aircraft that has two stealth fighter programs in place and that has openly tested anti-satellite weapons. This is a country whose artificial intelligence and quantum computing research is world class to the point where in some ways they may actually be ahead of the United States. This is a very strong and capable adversary. It is a very competitive nation. You use the word adversary, and I'll I'll get back to that. But before we get to the word adversary, I wanted to ask, when you think of the term peer or near peer, how do you distinguish, you know, what would be your criteria for a peer versus a near peer? and, And where do you think China stands today, both 
in general and then specifically in space? I think that when we used to use the phrase near peer competitor more often, it was a country who had a broad range of capabilities, but in most categories, everything from level of industry to level of national infrastructure to level of scientific and technological achievement to where their cutting edge weapon, their cutting edge weapons were, how close were they to the United States? And in bulk, the majority, the supermajority of categories they would have been behind. That is not the case with a peer competitor. A peer competitor is a country where in all of these various areas, not just military, but level of science and technology, level of infrastructure, level of educational achievement, you are rivaling the United States. In some cases, you might be a little bit behind percentage points, et cetera. And in other areas, you will be our equal or even ahead. In some ways, Japan was a peer competitor in the 1980s and 1990s, not in the military realm, but certainly economically, they were catching up in a number of science and technology areas. They were rivaling us in terms of production technology. You know, the Toyota way clearly was world-class, et cetera. In the 50s and 60s, the Soviets, we thought, were economically nearly comparable to us. Sputnik demonstrated that the Soviets were our equal or even somewhat ahead. In certain areas of nuclear weapons and other technology, they were absolutely our peer. China in the 1980s was not even a near-peer competitor. Its economy was a fraction of the US or Japan even. But today, where they are roughly comparable to us in so many areas, they have gone from being a near-peer competitor to a peer competitor. I find that this seems to be a very difficult Thing for many Americans to swallow that because of their historic recollections, they find it truly hard to grasp that we might be dealing with someone who is actually on our level. And I find that there's a sort of a tendency to dismiss the idea that they're able to innovate or that they could project power in a way that could be harmful to U.S. interests. I think there are several factors at work. One is the very badly mistaken belief that authoritarian dictatorial regimes can't innovate. People forget the first successful jet fighter was the ME-262, and that was created by the Nazis. I think everyone would agree that that was a pretty dictatorial regime. The first major use of what we would now consider rockets in wartime were the V-1 and V-2, which were, again, created by the Nazis. The Sturmgewehr assault rifle, whose basic pattern has been emulated in the AK-47, the M4, etc., was created by the Nazis. The Soviets created, um, you know, flew Sputnik before we did. The Soviets tested a variety of nuclear capabilities, uh, including a fractional orbital bombardment system, which has now been in the news as the Chinese have done hypersonic. The Soviets were working on stealth while we were still trying to, you know, their, their mathematicians were always very good. So one aspect is authoritarianism. Another one is simply a uh, hangover, if you will, from earlier beliefs. Like you said, coffee table views of a China that was true in the 70s and 80s, but isn't quite true today. Part of that is a lack of language skills. More people still speak and read Spanish or German or French than probably do Chinese. China actively tries to conceal aspects of itself, certainly in weapons and military technology, in a way that the Soviets did not. And I think that we are still also operating under the policy hangover that China will eventually democratize as it gets wealthier, which was, I think, a miss lesson from the end of the Cold War. Because Eastern Europe, which never really had much legitimacy without the Soviets, collapsed, China presumably will at some point. Very, very dangerous and badly mistaken belief. So I want to carry on that for a moment. So I also see in a lot of Americans sort of a, a mirror imaging assumption that because 
they participate in the global economy, that because their goods are you know, ubiquitous and because, as you point out, many consumer goods are able to be found within China, that in some fundamental way, their system is a lot like ours. Tell us a little bit about what is the Chinese system and and how does it differ in important respects from our own system? Well, let's start with the most obvious. China is a dictatorship. China is led by the Chinese Communist Party. There are no other political parties. It's not like there is some other party that could displace the CCP. The Chinese Communist Party, in turn, as a communist party, as a Marxist-Leninist vanguard party, ensures that there is no civil society. There is no realm that is beyond the reach of the party. In fact, you know, there's the saying that if there are three Chinese people together, one of them should be a party member monitoring the other two. Whether you are talking about religion, whether you are talking about sports, whether you are talking about academia, at the end of the day, a party committee exercises, in many ways, ultimate power. There is no freedom of conscience. There is no ability to opt out. And that means that the CCP can reach out and recruit or employ all aspects of society to gather information and intelligence, to engage in economic espionage, or simply to monitor everyone else. Another aspect here is that there is no right to privacy. This is not even a secret in China. Anything you do, uh, the social credit score is an explicit statement. We are monitoring everything you do, and your ability to live your life will be impacted by this. So if your social credit score is too low, you cannot buy a train ticket to travel within China, never mind a plane ticket to leave China. This also applies to the military. The PLA, the People's Liberation Army, is not a national military. It is a party army. It is the armed wing of the Chinese Communist Party. And every officer in the PLA swears loyalty, not to the constitution of the People's Republic of China, but to the Chinese Communist Party. So all of these are factors. And then, of course, economically speaking, while there is a significant private sector in China, there is also still a state-owned enterprise sector of China, true for large heavy industries, steel, shipbuild, uh, not steel, sorry, shipbuilding, aerospace, et cetera, where those companies are de facto parts of the state, which you know, uh, anyone who has looked at the travails of General Electric or General Motors knows that that is not true in the United States. So another attitude I'll routinely sort of encounter is like, well, you know, but that's over there, right? How is that ever going to affect us? We are you know, secure in our liberties far across the ocean from China. And if they want to pursue this misguided uh, dictatorship, you know, what's the downside for me? Let them, them get rich. It'll be good for them. Well, that's certainly fair. The problem is that as China has gotten wealthier, it has increasingly wanted to influence how other people talk, think, and act towards China. So for example, look at the MBA. The MBA has been clearly pressured to keep its mouth shut about things like uh, the genocide towards the Uyghurs and China's ability to use its financial and economic power uh, has persuaded the MBA to stay silent. There's been a lot of talk uh, in the news about Peng Shui. She is a Chinese tennis star. She accused a senior Chinese leader of sexual assault. But unlike other countries where Me Too has led to a re-examination of attitudes towards women, towards sex, towards proper behavior, in her case, she was not only shut down, but then she was disappeared uh, to such an extent that the World Tennis, uh, Women's Tennis Association, to its credit, has pulled out of China saying, we don't know whether she's safe or not. And the Chinese efforts to show that she's safe are 
pretty close to that of you know a uh, hostage taker making your victim hold up a today's newspaper. But more to the point is, Beijing is saying it's nobody else's business if our senior leaders engage in such behavior. Again, once upon a time, you might have said, "Well, that's in other countries." But Me Too became a worldwide phenomenon, and a lot of American,、uh, you know, activists said this should not occur anywhere. Well, anywhere presumably includes China. Also, there is, as I said earlier, there's no real freedom of conscience, which impacts people of faith.、Um, whether you are Catholic, whether you are Buddhist, whether you are Muslim, whether you are Protestant, Hindu, etc., in China, they clearly crack down. On all faiths, and that is at the end of the day, they are not comfortable with simply doing that at home. As with the Soviet Union, they then wind up pressuring other places, and we see this with China's efforts to persuade、uh, the Pope to、uh, provide a list of all of the underground churches and underground、uh, bishops and cardinals. So you had mentioned、uh, the Uyghurs, and you used the word genocide. So what is actually you know happening there that? Ought to be of concern to the United States, and why, and and does that have any tie to how we might expect broader behavior, particularly as we move out into space? Well, the State Department's conclusion is that there is genocide going on because one, the Chinese appear to have locked up several, you know, <laughs> several million Uyghurs. They are systematically attempting to re-educate them. Families who have had members arrested were detained are now also quartering Chinese、uh, Communist Party officials or even military people. I mean, this is one of the bases for the Declaration of Independence. If you go back and take a look, is that he had, you know, the King George III had quartered troops、uh, among the colonists. There are disturbing reports of forced sterilization of weaker women, and there's pretty clearly a systematic effort to culturally, you know, reshape the Uyghur population. What does this have to do with space? Directly, very little. It's not as though the Uyghurs are a key part of China's space program. Although、uh, one suspects that if the Chinese want to take Uyghur territory to build additional spaceport facilities, they will do so with impunity. But it is noteworthy that at least part of the reason we know about all of this is the widespread use of space-based imaging to look at some of these camps. And one of the things the Chinese have long insisted. Is that you do not have a right to engage in essentially space-based reconnaissance.、Uh, that is more typically applied to nations, but they have long warned that if you engage in spying, essentially without our permission,、um, then there will be consequences. That was less of a concern before China tested ASATs, but as China moves forward and as it engages in a variety of cyber activities,、uh, one of the threats implicit is that. If you are a commercial Earth imaging company, you may well find that、uh, if you are imaging parts of China that China doesn't want you to, like say camps where for Uyghurs, you will probably be attacked、uh, cyberwise. Getting back to sort of the, the, the centrality of, of China's intentions, what do we know about what President Xi and his his faction within the Communist Party want to achieve? Uh, for China, and in particular, what are the things that they are, might seek to achieve that sort of step on the toes of our allies or come at the expense of U.S. interests? Well, the Chinese in this regard are actually fairly straightforward. They talk about the importance of their core interests, and the core interest, as laid out by Dai Bingguo of the CCP, is actually again fairly straightforward. One, 
maintaining the current system, meaning keeping the CCP in power, uh, state sovereignty and territorial integrity, meaning places like Taiwan, but also Tibet and Xinjiang and the South China Sea are Chinese territory and must be recognized as such by everyone else. And then maintaining the basis for economic development, because the CCP understands that staying in power is not simply a matter of bayonet, it is also a matter of garnering legitimacy. And economic development is how you demonstrate to the people that life under the CCP is improving, that your children will live better than you do. All of that is tied back to CCP legitimacy and staying in power. To this end, she has talked about the China dream. And the China dream, as laid out in Chinese writings, is a great revival of the Chinese people. China has long been the dominant power in Asia until about 170 years ago, time of the Opium War and the start of what the Chinese termed the center of humiliation, when it fell, when it became the sick man of Asia. And now China's back. And Xi Jinping is saying, we're going to go all the way to the top. We want to be the dominant power in Asia, arguably the dominant power in the world uh, as a long-term goal. To this end, in the CCP's view, we now live in the information age, meaning the currency of national and international power has shifted from the industrial age, when it was mostly a matter of making stuff. How many tons of steel did you produce? How many uh, tons of bauxite did you smelt? How many merchant ships did you produce? To the ability to generate and move information. So that means information communications technology is important. That means software is important. That means intellectual property is important. And space matters in all of this because space is how you gather information, uh, especially for military purposes, but also for commercial and, and surveys and things like that. How you move information, uh, satellite communications, how you exploit information, position, navigation, and timing. And the information that is analyzed, that is derived from space, often will give you insight into what the other side is doing, where you know you have resources, et cetera, et cetera. So space is a key part of the China dream, the great revival of the Chinese people. It feeds into military capability. It feeds into diplomatic and political capacity. It generates economic benefits. Uh, it even contributes to cultural security, uh, how Chinese people think of themselves and how others look at China. China is only the second country to successfully land on Mars. The fact that China, what used to be the sick man of Asia, has now done something Europe has yet to do uh, is huge. Let's talk a little bit specifically about what the Chinese space program is today, because I, most people, when they are confronted by the scope and scale across all the different sectors, are fairly shocked to realize just how significant. And then, you know, within the world, like, where would you put China's space program relative to the United States or Russia or, or Japan, uh, the other spacefaring powers? So China has a full range of space capabilities. What do we mean by that? When we look at space as an enterprise, no pun intended, we see that it, they have launch facilities. They have a space industrial complex that manufactures their own satellites. And they have, therefore, a range of satellite capabilities. China has four launch sites. Most countries, most countries have none. Um, among the spacefaring countries, uh, quite a few only have two. But China has four. Four. China's space industrial complex includes two state-owned enterprises, each of over 100,000 people, uh, to give you a sense of scale. Uh, each is comparable to Boeing, but neither of these companies makes airliners uh, or helicopters, uh, as Boeing does. So China is in some ways self-sufficient when it comes to making launch vehicles, 
uh, building launch facilities, equipping those launch facilities with radars and communications equipment and sensors. And China has a full range of satellites. It has communication satellites. It has weather satellites. In fact, uh, China's weather satellite constellation for a long time was more robust than ours. At one point, we were down to pretty much one new satellite and the number of um, overage uh, weather satellites. China has weather satellites in both geosynchronous and low Earth orbit. Uh, China has position navigation timing satellite network. Uh, ours is GPS. China's Beidou system was the third to be deployed. Uh, it was GPS, GLONASS, and then Beidou. Uh, they have reconnaissance satellites, uh, Earth observation systems. They have. Uh, they are working on satellites that can service other satellites. They have deep space probes. They have landed on the moon. They have landed on Mars. They are also building both small sats, uh, satellites that are less than you know several dozen tons, all the way down to CubeSats, and all the way up to uh, Greyhound bus-sized satellites. They have... Uh, so therefore, they have really a massive range of capabilities. And then when we talk about human spaceflight, they are able to put their own astronauts into space, something that for almost a decade we could not do after the space shuttle. Uh, they now have a space station up of their own. They are thinking about uh, follow-on uh, space stations. Uh, so they have, again, even in human spaceflight, they are ahead of the Europeans, they're ahead of the Japanese, they're ahead of the Indians. So again, a very, very robust range of capabilities. Let's talk a little bit about these new military capabilities. So you mentioned that they had uh, done a very public ASAT test back in 2007, catch us up on what they've done since then, both in direct and uh, co-orbital. But they also, as you mentioned, uh, recently did some very public hypersonic tests, including what some characterized as a fractional orbital bombardment, what I think they themselves said was a, a space plane test. So what are these and, and, and what should they mean to us? The Chinese have demonstrated a range of military space capabilities. They themselves talk about uh, certain key military mission areas, space strike weapons, counter space, uh, what we would term counter space capabilities, defensive capabilities, et cetera. 2007, they tested an ASAT against a low Earth orbit satellite, unfortunately generating thousands of pieces of debris, the worst debris generating event in space history. Subsequently, they tested an ASAT against a geosynchronous target. In that case, they didn't hit anything, uh, but that was deliberate. So uh, imagine that you are aiming at a point in space uh, where something was an hour ago. If you can hit that spot knowingly, then no, to where you want to, then presumably you could have launched an hour earlier and hit that spot. No one else has tested a direct ascent anti-satellite weapon aimed at geosynchronous orbit, in part because geosynchronous orbit is arguably the most valuable real estate out there. But the Chinese have essentially sent a political message. Uh, anything out that far out, uh, about 24,000 miles, is potentially vulnerable. The Chinese cyber capabilities are well known. Space is ultimately about information, especially in their view. So if you can cyber attack uh, networks, you could potentially bring down the satellite control network or the data network. You could potentially turn a satellite off or turn it away from its intended target. Uh, without destroying anything, you've nonetheless achieved what's sometimes termed a mission kill. China has uh, developed and, and tested servicing satellites. In and of itself, that's perfectly reasonable. A lot of countries, Canada, the United States, are working on satellite servicing ability to basically refuel a satellite or repair it in orbit. Always, for all of these countries, including China and others, um, a space servicing satellite could also 
be a space destructor satellite. If I can repair a solar panel, I could, in theory, rip one off. With regards to hypersonic, I personally think that a lot of the attention is misguided. China has tested a hypersonic glide vehicle. Other countries have as well, including the United States, but also Russia and even North Korea. What was startling about this is that the thing apparently went into orbit. And it doesn't make it or shouldn't make anyone feel any better about this idea that, well, it might have been a space plane. Because at the end of the day, as a hypersonic glide vehicle, uh, and one that apparently ejected some kind of submunition, what the Chinese are essentially warning is that any satellite, anything that goes into orbit could be a carrier, could be something carrying a weapon. We in the Soviets worked very hard not to develop such a capability uh, to the point of agreeing you know, uh, quietly not to develop them because of how destabilizing that is. Imagine if any satellite orbiting overhead we had to worry about might carry some kind of weapon, nuclear weapon, hypersonic weapon, et cetera. When you consider how many satellites are up there, you very quickly start assuming that if any satellite could, maybe every satellite does. And now in the middle of a crisis, you'd be wondering, am I going to face a decapitating strike from a satellite that I thought maybe was a weather satellite or was a communication satellite? The Chinese are very, very dangerously playing with a highly destabilizing capability here. And the fact that rather than saying, huh, okay, well, you know, let's not do that again, say, oh, it was just a space plane and maybe we'll test it again in the future. That is really going to lead to everyone being much less well off in the long run. You know, just to backtrack a little bit, why would the Chinese do these things? Don't they know that this would upset us, that we would see this as irresponsible behavior? And aren't they wanting to be friends? seek a new kind of great power relationship? Well, in terms of being irresponsible, that's always in the eye of the beholder. And one of the things that the Chinese very much resent is having other people tell them how to behave while not necessarily listening to how China would like you to behave. So if uh, we think that a um, you know, fractional orbital bombardment system is irresponsible, Chinese rejoinder would be, uh, well, selling weapons to a renegade province like Taiwan is irresponsible. Do the Chinese want to be friends? The Chinese certainly would prefer a stable world where everyone can make more money. But... It also has to be a world that is safe for autocracy, a world where Moscow and Beijing have roughly co-equal voices with Washington, Tokyo, et cetera. So in that context, what the Chinese are doing to their mind is deterring and also coercing. Uh, the Chinese are attempting to coerce places like Taiwan and Japan and deter places like the United States uh, and NATO, Europe, into acceding to China's desire for establishing essentially a massive sphere of influence that would encompass pretty much all of Asia. China would be left alone to dominate that zone. The problem here, of course, is that one, there are a number of American allies there, Japan, South Korea, the Philippines, Thailand, uh, key friends, uh, Taiwan, Singapore, key technological and economic interests, the global semiconductor industry, the global hard, uh, thumb drive and hard drive industries, information and communications technology writ large. So the United States cannot simply cede this region to China and still try to be a superpower. So that's where we are. So that would be the, the inevitable disagreement there that would lead you to paint uh, China as an adversary? It is a combination of the clash of national interests, great powers confronting each other. But in addition, there is the realities that China comes out of a political system that is ideologically sees itself as incompatible with the West. Uh, 
you know, you often hear from some American analysts, you know, China doesn't pose an existential threat to the United States because China is not trying to take over the United States. That's true. But here's the problem. China sees us, the West, not just the United States, but the West, as posing an existential threat to the CCP. And that raises the question, if they see us as posing an existential threat, is there anything they wouldn't do to survive? to preserve the rule of the CCP. There's very little, actually, that seems to be off limit. And then there's a broader meta problem. China isn't European. China is an Asian country. Asian countries did not develop balance of power politics. In Europe, we had balance of power politics, and everyone is, in a sense, accustomed to the idea that if you have a single dominant hegemon rise, Napoleonic France, Wilhelmine Germany, Nazi Germany, uh, the Soviet Union, then the other major powers will coalesce to counter it. China's environment is that for 5,000 years, you never had balance of power politics. So their natural state, in their view, based upon you know four, four to 5,000 years of history, is China is and should be the dominant power. And, you know, that is a very different way of looking at the world, the way things ought to be. The same way that, you know, China would disagree with whether or not its behavior is irresponsible. China would also disagree with the idea that, well, but other countries along your periphery should be able to map out their own future. Chinese responses, I suspect, would be, well, actually, it's not suspect, it's what they said at the 2010 ASEAN Regional Forum. There are big powers and there are small powers, and that is simply reality. So when we talk about big powers and small powers and coalition, I wonder if you might uh, talk a little bit about the Belt and Road Initiative, the Space Information Corridor, how they're using Baidu, what relationship that might have to both their 5G and whatever they're doing with the, the SATCOM efforts, and how they sort of use, use space as part of their diplomacy efforts. So the Belt and Road Initiative, it's important to note, began as a jobs program for China. China had a huge overcapacity of steel and cement, particularly once it had finished building all of the infrastructure that it wanted to build, plus extra, plus ghost cities. You might remember those things. Cities that had the capacity for maybe 5 million people and maybe had 500,000 people living in them. What do you do with these plants now that you've built everything you can pretty much imagine, and they are employing thousands and thousands of Chinese workers. Well, the answer was, let's start exporting. And that was really the genesis of the Belt and Road Initiative, which at the time was something like this uh, Maritime Road Economic Belt, sorry, the, so the Silk Road uh, Economic Belt and the Silk Road Maritime Road, which became the One Belt, One Road, which is now Belt and Road Initiative. As China was exporting cement and steel through jobs, through infrastructure development in these other countries, it realized it was also gaining political influence. And over time, these two became, in a sense, sort of intertwined. So China is still exporting steel and cement. It brought its own workforce with them. So it wasn't exporting jobs per se. And in the process was gaining political influence. And in some cases, like in Sri Lanka, because the projects were not money-making at the end of the day, the hosting state defaults and China winds up getting a port. The Space mm. Silk Road and things like that basically is the use of China's space capabilities. Uh, one, 
in some cases to build uh, infrastructure, to do surveys, et cetera, to accustom countries to the use of Chinese space capabilities, uh, preferring uh, Chinese weather satellites or preferring Chinese commsats uh, channels to others. But also with the Beidou timing network, incorporating the Beidou system into the pipelines, power grids, and cell phone networks that are being built out so that in the future, if these countries want to get off of or move away from China, they're going to find it very difficult because so much of their infrastructure is tied to the Beidou timing signal. And it is highly unlikely that Beijing will help these countries move off of Beidou to say GPS or the European Galileo system or anybody else. Indeed. And they're also, uh, they've opened up their space station, and I believe they now have an international lunar research station user's guides out there where they're inviting other nations to participate in exploration now. Is that right? We need to be very careful about these sorts of things. The China Aerospace Science and Technology Corporation CAST and the China Aerospace Science and Industry Corporation, even though they're state-owned enterprises, they don't quite speak for China the way the state council does, and certainly not the way the Chinese Communist Party's Politburo and Politburo Standing Committee do. So to some extent, what we are suffering from is a proliferation of Chinese voices, not all of which are authoritative. But what we do know is the following, that the Chinese have stated that their space station will eventually be open to international participation, and they have invited foreign countries to send uh, astronauts to China for training. The space uh, labs, the uh, original t- uh, Tiangong 1 and 2 and the Senzo docking collars, docking systems are compatible with the Russian system, which by the way is also was true for the international, uh, is true for the International Space Station, was true for the space shuttle. So the Chinese have at least indicated um, that they will eventually be open to foreign astronauts operating on the Chinese space station. I suspect that they'll want to rotate a number of purely Chinese crews through first. Uh, with regards to lunar objectives, that's open to speculation. They've, a number of Chinese officials have talked about the idea of eventually having a uh, crewed uh, human-staffed uh, uh, space station, lunar station. But when that would occur is much less clear. Um, there's no indications of that in the 14th five-year plan, which will run through 2025. So it might be in the 15th, uh, which would run 2026, 20, 2030. But that would still require that the Chinese practice several things, probably a lot more in the way of space station operations and docking to get accustomed to extended operations uh, in space under microgravity conditions. Probably would like a couple more missions to the moon robotically, both to survey potential landing sites, but also, again, to make sure that the telemetry systems work, which you don't want. China has been very fortunate. There have been no casualties that we know of in China's human spaceflight program. I suspect they would very much want to maintain that track record. And for all we know, the first Chinese, uh, you know, the first Chinese on the moon may want to be landed on the far side of the moon, which would again require a bit more infrastructure build out before anyone tried to do something like that because of the risks involved. Speaking of uh, human exploration, they've got a a crew of uh, at least three, I think, up on their space station now. Do we know how they reacted to the Russian ASAP? Were, Were there concerns that that large number of new debris might impact their own operations? I have to admit, I haven't looked at the plane that the uh, Tiangong is in and whether it's on the same plane as the ISS. It is in low Earth orbit, but 
that that doesn't actually tell us all that much. And I haven't seen anything about the Chinese space station having to move because of debris. Uh, what is striking about the Tiangong, the current Chinese space station, is that it is being, uh, that the crew rotates through about every six months. And that is very, very startling because the Chinese until now have generally had one human spaceflight mission every two years. So what we are seeing is a much higher op tempo. With that kind of op tempo for them, it may be that they are prepared as necessary to move crews off of the station if need be. But um, I haven't mm -hmm. seen anything with regards to what they have done in the wake of the Russian ASAT test. Are we overdue for a new Chinese white paper on space? It seems we would have been expecting one by now, but I, I don't recall seeing one. And if it is um, late, what should we, how should we interpret that? I'm not sure it's late. The Chinese, last Chinese space white paper, if I remember, I came out December 31st, 2016, pretty much at the last possible moment of the schedule. In general, the Chinese space white paper comes out about every five years, key to the contemporaneous five-year plan. So the 2016 space white paper basically fleshed out uh, space objectives within the 13th five-year plan. So we would expect that this one will come out probably... December 31st, maybe a couple of days over. I mean, one of the things that is true, for example, for the DOD report on China, for the Chinese uh, defense white papers, et cetera, was that as these things became more bureaucratized, they also all experience slippage. I think this is one of the iron laws of bureaucracy is that you can make me publish one of these on a regular basis, but you can't dictate what date it appears. What I would expect to see, however, in the space white paper will be, programmatically speaking, a review of the things that were achieved over the last five years. So Tiangong uh, being orbited, finally, uh, Long March 5 going, finally being successfully launched, 6, 7, and 8 as well a laydown of key major programs of the next five years, actually four years at this point. So probably the Long March 9, uh, which has been talked about, where the space station is going to go in terms of total number of modules. Will there be some kind of uh, few, sub, you know, additional landings on the moon, especially if they think that they would want to land on the far side of the moon? Maybe a sample retrieval mission from Mars. I could easily see that. But, they, but whatever is in that uh, white paper, will probably reflect the specifics for the five-year plan and will therefore have absolute bureaucratic support because that's how you wound up in the white paper because all the bureaucracies signed off on it. That means the budget is guaranteed. That means the engineers have been, on, you know, it has been explained to them, you will get this done. It means broader support within the various bureaucracies, uh, including the PLA, which manages China's space infrastructure. So I would expect, uh, now, I, what I don't expect to see at all is any reference to national security space, because the space white papers have never talked about national security space. In fact, if you were to simply rely on the space white paper, you might almost come away with the belief that China doesn't have a military space program at all. Well, that's a good segue, you know, sort of into the, the last uh, bit for you to finish up. So when we think about the military space program, and, and really any tie in to the strategic national security part of of the dual use aspect, what does the what does the United States and perhaps in particular the Space Force need to anticipate that's coming? And what advice would you give to the nation and, and to the Space Force in order to not be caught flat footed? Wake up. Probably the single most important piece of advice is, and less so to the Space Force, which I think is waking up, but understand several things. We have not faced an adversary since 1990 that had a space capability. 
not the Afghans, not the Iraqis, not the Serbs. We face an adversary that has a full range of space capabilities, that thinks about space, that thinks about countering our capabilities in space, and above all, is asymmetric when it comes to the use of space. We need space. We fight away games, and without space, we cannot do so effectively. China's main threats are all on its periphery where it could easily live without space. It does not need space to do reconnaissance against India. It does not need space to do reconnaissance against Taiwan. It does not need space to do surveillance over the South China Sea. The other thing to keep in mind for broad decision makers is stop thinking that China will wind up looking like us in space. I don't know how many times I have heard, and I'm sure you have as well, but China will become dependent on space just like we are. And I keep wondering, is this the same law of physics that says that China will wind up becoming a democracy because it's gotten wealthier? Because that certainly hasn't come true. Why in the world would a China that sees the weaknesses of the United States when it comes to being dependent on space, turn around and become dependent on space, especially as it builds out massive infrastructure under BRI so that it has fiber optic and other links that will allow it to communicate and potentially even transport information, et cetera, without having to rely on space. So then there is this whole sort of, well, you know, there's all these other voices in China that are somehow closet liberal political science major Democrats. It's fascinating that apparently this is true everywhere, but they're never actually in power, are they? The PLA manages an awful lot of the Chinese space program, including having directorship of things like the China Lunar Exploration Program and the Shenzhou program. Why it is that we would somehow, we should assume that they are at the end of the day, however, all going to be you know graduates of the American Political Science Association approach to IR is beyond me. And as we watch China build out its nuclear capabilities, far in excess of what we had seen in the past, even the assumption that they would be happy with a minimal nuclear deterrent is now falling by the wayside. So again, why should you assume, however, that when it comes to space, China is going to suddenly become fans of the security dilemma and arms control is beyond me. I think that there is no greater threat than self-delusion. And I see a lot of self-delusion, not so much in DOD, but in large swath of academia and, sadly, parts of our diplomatic corps. You know, obviously, there is an important tie-in in terms of our own uh, overhead assets that you mentioned, uh, finding out more about their, their nuclear program. But I wanted to ask you more specifically about uh, their military organization and, you know, how is how are they composed and what have they integrated their space with? So at the end of 2015, the PLA underwent the most extensive reorganization in its history. Uh, I won't go into all the various details because that's hours and hours worth of stuff there. But the two key pieces of this, one, they stood up in peacetime their wartime command structure. So where there had once been seven military regions, which the PLA always said were peacetime organizations, and we think that's true, they were replaced by five war zones, uh, sometimes translated as theaters of operation. And each of these is now headed by Joint Campaign Command Headquarters. This is their wartime structure. So now the people who are going to be working together in wartime are working together in peacetime getting to know each other, getting to understand each other's capabilities. One of the key pieces in each of these JCCH, Joint Campaign Command Headquarters, 
is the slots for the PLA Strategic Support Force. This was a new service created in this reorganization as well. It brought together China's electronic warfare capabilities, people who do things like jam radars and radios, network warfare capabilities, which is cyber, but more broadly speaking, people who work at mapping out and then uh, attacking enemy networks, information networks, communications networks, but also presumably energy networks, transportation networks, and their space capabilities, which were brought over from what used to be the General Armaments Department, the weapons development section of the PLA, is now instead incorporated into a service to do operational things. And we, uh, you know, presumably that would mean their ASAT capabilities, their counter space capabilities. Interestingly, they also brought over uh, Base 311, which is their political warfare capabilities. So essentially, the PLA Strategic Support Force is China's information warfare force. Information in the broadest sense, the gathering of information by folks in space, the ability to process and move information across networks through computers, so hardware and software, electronic warfare and network warfare, and the interpretation of information, which is political warfare. So this force presumably has billets in every one of the war zones, and integrates itself in the planning process into the Eastern War Zone, whose tasks area, whose area of operations uh, we believe includes Taiwan, the Western War Zone, which is believed to include uh, India, uh, the Northern War Zone, uh, which would presumably mean uh, Japan, Korea, the Southern War Zone, which would be uh, Vietnam and the South China Sea. And interestingly, there is a Central War Zone. We're not really sure what that function is. Presumably, it is a grand strategic reserve, but might also include uh, nuclear deterrence and things like that, a more global mission. So the point here is that this new service is integrated into the war zone command structures for each of the main, most likely contingency areas. Uh, and its job is to fight and win the information portion of future wars, to establish what the Chinese term information dominance. So this is a no kidding integration of space with integrated network and electronic warfare and even political warfare in fighting and winning future informationized local wars. Now, I should uh, mention for the listeners that you've done a fair amount thinking about Chinese cyber and, and the views of information, and you've just published something called Cyber Dragon, where I think you probably elaborate some of this and, and talk about space. And I wonder, do you also, I know you've published and written and talked about what you call lawfare. Do you get into lawfare in the uh, publication as well? Yes, I do. Because political warfare, which includes lawfare or legal warfare, is information warfare at the strategic level. And the Chinese think about information and its role in warfare at the strategic, operational, and tactical level. And so in Cyber Dragon, we try to explore each of those aspects. Well, Dean, thank you so much for spending this time with us. And I look forward to our next conversation. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Space Strategy Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe wherever you are listening. For questions and comments, please reach out at spacepod at afpc.org. Thank you for listening.